So in our passage now, the Holy Spirit who descended on Jesus in his baptism in the last chapter is leading Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by, tested by the devil. And before we kind of jump into the details of that temptation, I think it's helpful to kind of think about what's at stake in this story. It says that Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days, and at the end of the 40 days, the devil comes and starts to tempt him. We don't know what happened for that entire 40 days, but what we do know is that there's only one other person in the Bible that we are told spent 40 days and 40 nights fasting, and that person was Moses. So long ago in Israel's history, when the people had left Egypt, but before they had entered the promised land, so they're in this sort of space between where they are slaves and then where they will be free. They're kind of living in the middle. Jesus, uh, Moses goes up on a mountain, and in Exodus 34 it says, he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the word of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So for the people who are hearing this story a couple thousand years ago when it was told for the first time, probably this language of 40 days and 40 nights is going to trigger a vision of Moses. Moses has been here before. He went up on the mountain and he received the word from the Lord. And when he came down, he brought the Ten Commandments with him to share with the people. And the Ten Commandments are sort of like, I mean, it's the beginning of the covenant between God and Israel. And it's sort of like wedding vows between the people and God. It's sort of like saying, we're going to be in a relationship for a long time, and these are the terms. This is what both sides agree to do in order to be in relationship. And so Moses is like officiating the wedding, if you can allow that image. And then he's going to be like the wedding, uh, the marriage counselor for the next 40 years. Because things are going to go bad pretty fast. And the Israelites are going to grumble against God, and Moses is going to talk sense into them, and then God, he's going to go to God and plead the, on behalf of the people. And so he sort of works for all of his life as a sort of counselor or minister between God and the people. And so now Jesus is in a similar place. He's in the wilderness. He's there for 40 days and 40 nights. We don't know exactly what happens, but I assume he's receiving a word from the Lord because he's about to go out. Uh, and lead the people and serve a similar role. He's going to be like the mediator now between God's people and God. And he's going to ask them essentially to renew their vows. When he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, which we'll read about later, he's, he's asking them to kind of pick back up on this covenant that you've left behind. And so these two stories are kind of, should be in our minds at the same time. But the thing about Moses is that for the entire time that Moses led the people, the people rebelled against him. They never followed him. They would have their moments, and then it would go well, and, but for the most part, it was, it was pretty bad. The second thing is, kind of regarding Moses himself, is that Moses was sort of an almost leader. He was almost faithful to God for the entire time. He almost got the people to the promised land. He almost went into the land that God had set for him and for the people, but he didn't quite make it. And so I think the question that maybe should be on our minds as we're reading this passage is, will Jesus do better than Moses? How is this time going to be different? Because we've been here before, and it didn't go great the last time. So I think the sort of weight of this story 
is how does how does this change things will will jesus do this better than moses does and so after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting our, our passage says he was hungry as one would be and that's when the devil shows up and sort of turns the screws to see what jesus is made of that's what this testing is about so the devil gets uh the tempter puts jesus through sort of three temptations i want to walk through each of those and talk about what they mean for us so the first one comes here in the next verse the tempter came to jesus and said if you are the son of god command these stones to become loaves of bread and two quick things here uh, that kind of help with the rest of the story is the son of god language that the devil is using connects us right back to the previous passage of jesus's baptism so when jesus is baptized the holy spirit descends and you hear and a voice speaks from heaven and says this is my son with whom i am well pleased listen to him right so we already know that jesus is the son of god uh, presumably the devil also knows that jesus is the son of god and one way that you can hear this language instead of if you are the son of god is since you are the son of god um, the, the Greek, I think, can be translated both ways, but everybody knows. Like, we all heard the voice, and including the devil. So it's not so much questioning Jesus' identity as it is questioning the implications of that identity. Because you're the Son of God, you can behave differently than other people, surely. Right? That's the, that's the sort of nature of the test. It's not asking, are you sure you're the Son of God? It's saying, what are the limits of that? What's the extra sort of permission that you get, the flexibility or the latitude that you get if you're God's son? And that's where Jesus starts, or where the devil starts to press Jesus, is on what does it mean for him that he is the son of God in his actual kind of devotion. So the devil says to him, look, you're hungry, you've been out here 40 days, all you have to do is turn stones into bread, and then you'll be full. This is easy for the son of God. In a previous passage, John said that God could raise children for Abraham out of the stones, so turning stones into bread should be pretty easy. Like, this is within Jesus' wheelhouse. And at a certain level, I think the devil's exactly right. This is something Jesus could do. Later in the story of his life, Jesus will feed 5,000 people by multiplying loaves and multiplying fishes. This is easy. Jesus can do it. And instead of just doing it, Jesus gives what sounds like a really spiritual, super spiritual response. He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Um, so this strikes me as a kind of super spiritual response at the end of being very hungry to say, well, don't worry about it. I'm not all that hungry after, after all because I've got God's word in my heart. But the text already told us that Jesus is hungry, right? So his hunger matters. His hunger is a sort of principle that we're working on here. It's not like Jesus is saying, I don't need calories because I've got the finitude. So we're good. You know. What Jesus is doing here is he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8. So that's a little ahead of where I asked you to turn in chapter 6. Maybe flag that and look at it later. Jesus is quoting a truth, but he's also um, referencing an entire story. And in that story... The people are in the wilderness, they've come out of Egypt, they've not yet made it to the promised land, and they're hungry because they don't have any bread. And 
Moses is reminding the people in Deuteronomy that when you didn't have any bread, God fed you manna in the wilderness. He fed you miraculously by giving you uh, something that you couldn't work for or something you couldn't earn on your own. And so what it means when Jesus says that we don't live just by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, he's reminding the devil that Jesus knows what all of us should know, that God will provide for our most basic needs in his time and in his way. Okay? God started this fast. God sent him into the wilderness, and it's up to God to decide when the fast will end. It's not up to Jesus to say, you know what, you're right, I'm hungry, and it's within my power to fix it, I'm going to fix it. Instead, he says, this is not my call. I wait and I eat when God is ready for me to eat. We know that the, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus, the very first thing that Jesus tells his disciples to pray when he gives them instructions on how to pray is give us today our daily bread. That means our very basic needs. The, the things that we need most to survive are important. God cares about those things. But Jesus is reminding us that those most basic things are gifts from God. They're not things that we earn on our own. They're things that God gives generously and graciously. And so what the devil is really tempting Jesus to do is to forget or ignore the fact that for all human beings, all of our most basic needs come from God, and that even the Son of God has to rely on God for his basic needs. Jesus doesn't get a pass just because he's God's son. God decided when it would end or begin. It's up to him to decide when it will end. And God, Jesus is modeling that uh, what w our job is, is to just trust that God cares about our most basic needs. He's sort of addressing a lie that I think the devil would love for all of us to believe, which is that God doesn't really care about our basic sustenance and provision. The devil would love for us to think that in order for us to have what we need, we have to take it. We have to grab it. We have to hustle for it. We have to break our necks, making sure that we cover our butts because we got, it's all up to us, right? The devil would love for us to think that way. And one of the reasons for that is because it's impossible for us to, to be generous in the way that Pastor Vermon just encouraged us to be generous if we think that we have to cover all of our basic needs on our own. If it's totally up to us, if it's totally up to me, then I don't have any margin. I can't spare anything because I'm just grabbing and I'm grasping. There's a proverb uh, 30 that says, uh, chapter 30, verse 9, where it's a really remarkable, check it out later, but it says, don't, it's praying to God. It says, give me neither poverty nor riches, but only what I need for every day. Because if I'm rich, I will forgive you, forget you, and if I'm poor, I will steal. And so I think what Jesus is helping us remember is that God gives us what we need when we need it. When we forget that, we can't be generous. And we might be unjust and dishonest in the way we get what we think we need. And Jesus is saying, even for the Son of God, there's no special treatments. There's no special process. He's doing this the way Israel should have done it. And he's doing it the way all of us should do it, which is trusting that God wants to meet our most basic needs. So Jesus essentially deflects that temptation and moves on to the next one. And the devil 
took him to the holy city and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, or since you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, like lest you strike your foot against a stone. I think this is a really interesting sort of shift in tactic. In the previous temptation, the devil basically said to Jesus, you can do this, you should just do it. Jesus responds by quoting scripture, and the next time around, the devil starts with scripture and says, hey, look, if you're really the son of God, here's this passage from the Bible that says what God will do to protect his son. So you should just do this thing, right? And I think um, it's interesting that this time Jesus, uh, well, like last time, he doesn't really enter into debate. He doesn't do what Eve does in Genesis and kind of go three rounds of discussion about the meaning of the passage. He doesn't, what actually the devil, he doesn't say, well, another way to interpret that is, he just stops and he says, he quotes Deuteronomy again. Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So what does that mean? This is uh, Deuteronomy 6, 16. So we're back in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 6, um, Moses is encouraging the people to uh, keep all of the Lord's commandments instead of testing him as they did in the wilderness. And then he refers to a story that kind of goes back a little bit in time. Uh, the people received bread from the Lord, and then they got thirsty. And instead of saying, oh, God fed us, now we're thirsty, surely he's going to give us water to drink. They said, God fed us, now we're thirsty, oh my gosh, God delivered us from Egypt just so he could bring us out in the wilderness and kill him, kill us himself. Like they just panic immediately. And so instead of trusting God, they grumble against him. And that word has interesting connotations. It's, it's the language of legal accusation. They, they bring a charge against God. And so essentially what they do is they go to Moses, who's the mediator, and they say, God brought us out of Egypt. That's great. But now he's planning to kill us in the desert by starving us to death and not giving us any water. And we want you to go back to him and tell him that this is not okay with us. So we're trying to leverage Moses as like a prosecuting attorney. And I think what that means for us is that testing appears to mean something like behaving as if God has to be leveraged or manipulated into doing what's right. So the first one is that he doesn't care about our needs. The second one is that maybe he cares, but in order to, to, to make good on a promise, we've got to keep leveraging God and making sure that he's good to his word. So the way this looks for Jesus is this, I think. You're the son of God, and everybody should know it. So what you should do is stage a big kind of theatrics. Go to some high place and throw yourself down, and when you do, God is obligated by these passages I just quoted at you. He's obligated to catch you and let you down unharmed. And when he does that, everybody will know you're the son of God. So that's something that God wants, and it's something that you want, and you just have to kind of help him out. Because God can't be trusted to do this thing that he promised to do um, without your help. What Jesus knows is that God will keep his word and does not need to be manipulated. 
It doesn't need to be leveraged. And so he says, look, I'm not going to put God to the test. I'm just going to do what I'm called to do. And what's interesting is shortly after this passage, we'll see Jesus perform all kinds of miracles. There will be evidence that Jesus is who he says he is. And one thing the devil gets right here, the devil always gets something a little right. One thing the devil gets right here is that it probably would have been sort of um, no question, no confusion that Jesus was the son of God if everyone saw him leap from a building and land safely on the ground. When he starts healing the sick and raising the dead and casting out demons, people are going to say, oh, he does that because he's possessed by a devil. So he does the miracles, and people misinterpret what they mean. And may, what, what the devil is saying is, like, here's something that can't be misinterpreted. Do it my way, and it'll all be real clear. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to do it God's way. And so he goes out. And he performs his miracles, and there's confusion, and there's misunderstanding. But what's really interesting to me is at the very end, <clears throat> excuse me, didn't, didn't plan on that. Um, at the very end of Matthew's gospel, while Jesus is hanging on a cross, a Roman soldier says, surely this was the Son of God. So what the devil told Jesus is that in order to prove that you're the Son of God, you need to do something spectacular. And I think what God was telling Jesus is in order for people to know you're the son of God, you've got to be faithful to the very end. And that's how people will know. And that's what Jesus chooses to do. I think this one feels a little harder to kind of apply to our own life because we're in an unusual, Jesus is in an un, unusual situation here. But when I think about my own conduct, I think about my own relationship with God, I think if I'm honest, there are times that I do good things for God as a way of leveraging him to keep his promises. And the way I know that is because sometimes when I feel like God is slow moving in doing the things that I'd like for him to do, I catch myself saying, but I was serving in a ministry and I'm tithing and I preach sometimes and I do, like, come on. You know, like, what else do you want? What else could I do to kind of move this along? Which helps me recognize that I think God needs my prodding to do the right thing. Even if I don't believe it, I feel it, and I default in that way. And so what Jesus is doing is addressing a lie the devil would really love for us to believe, which is that God has to be manipulated to keep his word. That God can do right by you, but he won't do right by you unless you keep him honest. And Jesus is showing us that the way to resist is just to keep being obedient and trust that God is for us. In the third temptation, the devil kind of drops the pretense. He says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he said, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Um, so let's leave aside the sort of theological discussion about whether this this is a thing that the devil can deliver on, right? Like, do all these things belong to the devil? Can he give it? Like, let's just leave that aside for a second. What I think is interesting in the story is that the devil is essentially saying, look, no more party tricks, turning stones into bread. That's cute. No more theatrics, throwing yourself from a high place and being caught by angels. Let's talk about what you really want, which is power, which is glory, which is all the things that you see 
spread out beneath our feet. He goes straight to kind of the core of what it means to be the son of God. Think about later in the story when Jesus is talking about bringing in his kingdom and the disciples will ask him things like, when you come into your kingdom, which of us gets to sit at the right hand, which is the place of authority? They recognize that being the son of God means that you have power of some sort. And, and the devil is testing Jesus to take more of it than Jesus feels uh, qualified to have or like that belongs to him. And say, just take it all, man. I can give it all to you, everything. You can stop playing these games and just give it all. And Jesus responds with Deuteronomy again. You shall worship the Lord your God and, uh, only, and him only shall you serve. So Jesus is back in Deuteronomy 6 here. And Moses is encouraging the people in this passage. <laughs> he's reminding them you're about to enter the promised land that God you know, promised to your parents, basically. And they didn't get to receive it because they were unfaithful, but we're on the edge. They're renewing their vows in the wilderness, kind of like Jesus will ask the people to do here. And he's telling them when you go into the, the, the new land, you're going to move into cities that you didn't build. And you're going to move into houses that are filled with all kinds of things that you didn't buy. And you're going to eat food from fields that you didn't plant. And you're going to drink water from wells that you didn't dig. And you're going to greet, greet, you're going to drink wine from grapes that you didn't grow. And when you do that, you'll be tempted to think that you did this for yourself. Because our memories are pretty short. And so when you go in and get it, remember, and that word comes up over and over in Deuteronomy, remember that all of this is a gift from God. None of this was provided by you. All of it was a gift. But you may be tempted once you receive it and get comfortable with the gift, familiar with the gift, to think that there's more and that God is holding out on you. And I think that's the lie that the devil here would love for us to believe and love for Jesus to believe is that, sure, God's given you a lot, but has he given you everything? Is there more and he's keeping it from you? I think this makes me think again of Genesis 3 when um, the devil is talking to Eve and they're in the garden and they can eat whatever they want except for the, from a couple of trees. And the way the devil gets to her is by saying, if you eat that, God knows if you eat that, you'll be wise like him. And he doesn't want that. Essentially, God is holding out on you. There's, he's giving you good, but there's better. And in order to get the better, you have to, to skip past God, right? And that's a, a lie that the devil would love for all of us to believe. But Jesus knows that there is no good beyond God. There's no good outside of what God has given. And so he responds to Satan and he says, Be gone, Satan. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Which again, I think is really interesting. What did the devil say would happen if Jesus threw himself from a high place? Angels would come and minister to him, right? Um, instead, Jesus is faithful to the end of this test, and God does what he promised. He sends angels to minister to him. And he's taken care of. Those of us who have read Matthew's story before know that at the very end, Jesus will say, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And it didn't come because he bypassed God's plan or because he leapfrogged God or because he doubted 
God's goodness, but because he trusted to the very end that this is how it has to happen. This is how it has to go. And of course, right now we see uh, Jesus being faithful in this test, but the way we will know that Jesus was fully um, obedient and fully uh, uh, in, in, endorsed by God is in his resurrection. When Jesus is faithful to the very end, we learn that it's not the end. Death is not the finish because God raises him from the dead. So the last two kind of points I want to make here in terms of application are this. The first, Jesus does hear what Moses couldn't do. When the devil leaves Jesus, he knows Jesus is one. The devil's not an idiot. He knows when he's licked and he waits for another opportunity. He also, we know that Jesus here has done what Moses failed to do. Moses could never be as faithful as Jesus was in facing these very same tests. Jesus did, by extension, what the Israelites could never do. God's people could never resist these three temptations. And over and over and over in the Old Testament, they believed the lie that God could not meet their most basic needs. They believed the lie that God had to be manipulated to keep his word. And they believed the lie that God was holding out on them. This is the heart of idolatry, which is the big problem in all of the Old Testament. That God's people start chasing after other gods, and it's almost never a total rejection of God, it's an addition. So it's never this God instead of that one, it's this God in addition to that one over there, right? I like to think of it as idolatry is hedging your bets. It's saying God is good, but this other God is like an insurance plan, just in case this one doesn't work out, right? We've got an extra layer of coverage is always helpful. They didn't follow other gods because they thought that the preaching was better at their neighbor's temples or that the music was better at the other worship services. They worshiped other gods because they were struggling to grow crops and their neighbors had good crops. And they were thinking, well, maybe God doesn't care if we have good crops. Maybe God doesn't care about our most basic needs, but that God seems to. So I'll add that one in. And that'll help. And they didn't worship other deities because they were kinder or more generous or more gracious, but because they were afraid that God was not going to keep his promises. And so Jesus finally accomplishes in this temptation what neither Israel or Moses could ever do. He, res they, he resists the temptation to believe these lies about God. And he trusts that God is going to do what he says he will do. And that's at least part of what it means when Jesus says later that he doesn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. It doesn't just mean that he keeps all the little details or all the little prescriptions. It means that he understands what the law is for. It's meant to help guide this relationship between him, between the people and God. And so he does it. And because he does it, they have the right relationship. God is good and Jesus is faithful. That's what was always supposed to happen. And Jesus fulfills that vision. And then I think where this really comes home for us is that Jesus, in doing all that, does what none of us can do. If we're honest, I think we can admit that we struggle with all of these temptations every bit as much as the Israelites do in the Old Testament. Sometimes I think that God does not care about my basic needs. Because sometimes the car needs repaired and there's a medical bill and there's something else all at the same time and it was not in my plan. And I think 
okay, I, this has suddenly happened, and I don't know where it's coming from. Does God care about this? And my mind automatically goes to, should I start driving for Uber? Do people still pay for blood plasma? Is that a thing? I don't know. Like, just immediately, like, I got to fix this. It's on me to fix this. I immediately think that God does not care, and it's on me. I think that I, as I mentioned already, am prone to think that God owes me for my good works. That I know I'm not saved by them, but I'm saved by grace. But then after that, I'm going to do good stuff and you're going to do good stuff. That's how this is going to work out. Because I need to leverage God to do what he said he would do, just to take care of me. And I know that I sometimes worry that God is holding out on me. That there's something better around the corner that if I hadn't made these choices of faithfulness, maybe I would be experiencing that thing that somebody else has and wondering, was I right to do this? Did God know that there was something more and he asked me to do this instead? And our passage then gives us a couple of things I think can be helpful when we feel those ways. One is it gives us a strategy um, that can help us when we face these temptations. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy. Now, I recognize that Deuteronomy is not the place that most people go when they need a quick spiritual pick-me-up. Like, it's not the warm, fuzzy book of the Bible. It's not, you know, Proverbs is nice, clever sayings, Psalms are beautiful. Deuteronomy is like ephahs and, you know, whatever, and we don't even know what those things are. That's not the place we think to go. What Deuteronomy is, in a really unique way, is a summary of how even when people are unfaithful over and over and over again, God is always faithful. And so it's not necessarily the individual quotations from Deuteronomy that can help us, although they can. It's being reminded what those quotations represent, these stories of the times that God's people went way out of bounds and God kept bringing them back graciously because he's good and he's kind and he's generous. And so one of the strategies here that Jesus models for us that we can imitate uh, as followers of Jesus is going back to these stories. When we feel like God is holding out on us, we can go back to stories where other people felt like God was holding out on them and be reminded that they felt like I feel, but that's not what was true. What was true is that God had a plan and it was just taking longer than they liked, right? Kind of moving them along. So one strategy is, or one thing it gives us is a strategy to go back to the scriptures. But, I, and I commend the scriptures to you. I find comfort in those stories as well. But the Bible itself, those stories are not enough for our unfaithfulness. And so the great good news is that more than having a model in Jesus, we have a substitution in Jesus. We have Jesus who has already passed this test who has already resisted these temptations, now has the grace to cover us when we fail and we will fail, right? His faithfulness is enough to work backward to satisfy all of Israel's history, and it's enough to work forward and satisfy all of our challenges and temptations and unfaithfulness. That's the great news of the gospel. It's not that Jesus gives us a good example to follow, it's that now when we're in him, we benefit from that righteousness and faithfulness of Jesus. I don't know exactly how that works, but the Bible is clear that now when Jesus, when God looks at us, he sees the obedience and faithfulness of Jesus and not our own weakness, right? So we don't trust in our ability to white-knuckle faithfulness. 
we move forward knowing God is good and God is generous and God is kind and that Jesus walks with us by his spirit to help us when we fall short. Amy's going to come up and lead us in a time of reflection, and I'm going to close us now in prayer. But I, I hope that we'll be thinking as we move forward, not only about the ways that we feel tempted, but the great grace of Jesus that covers it and carries us through. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful um, that you are none of the things that the devil likes to tell us that you are. We thank you that you care about our needs. We thank you that you are good to your word and that you fill our needs without our reminding you or leveraging you. And we thank you that you are not holding out on us, but that you have given us every good thing in Christ. We pray that you would help us to look in our hearts and to see where we um, are prone to be tempted in those ways and help us to see a bigger and bigger image of Jesus that helps to cover those things in us. It's in his name that we pray.